Hello and welcome to the Paranormal or What podcast with me, your host, Michaela Ford. How's your week been? Hard? Tiring? Well, come in, draw up a chair, put your feet up and pour yourself a drink. Let me tell you what's been happening in the world of the paranormal this week. In tonight's episode, we have lots of information and stories about UFOs and aliens, starting with my old friend Michelle from West Yorkshire, who saw a UFO one night back in the late 70s, early 80s in Halifax in West Yorkshire. After Michelle's story, we're going to be delving into UFO sightings, alien abductions and pondering all about what aliens are. What are the different types of alien? There are quite a lot of people who've done a lot of studying on this subject and it would take us weeks and months to cover it all. But we'll have a look at a little snippet of it tonight and see what we can find out. Don't forget, if you have any paranormal stories to share, please email them to me at paranormalorwhatpodcast at outlook.com. Alternatively, send me your story in via anchor.fm forward slash paranormalorwhatpodcast forward slash message. I absolutely am desperate to hear from people and I want you to call in and tell me your stories. I've had some fabulous stories by email, but I'd really love to hear you tell your stories yourself. Can you do that for me? Thanks. So, you can now listen to Paranormal or What on the following podcast platforms. Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Outcast, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Castbox, Pocket Casts and Radio Public. And also, don't forget to join us on the Facebook page of Paranormal or What Podcast. Right, well I think it's about time to start the show, don't you? It's going to be a wild ride tonight. Are you ready? The subject of UFOs and aliens is such a vast one that it would be impossible to fit everything into one podcast. It would take days, weeks or even maybe years to discuss everything that we need to discuss. So I figured a little at a time was the best way to go. Let's just chip away at it. So today we're going to start with a real life encounter by a lady called Michelle in Yorkshire. Then we're going to go through the different types of aliens that people have claimed to have seen and met. And then we're going to go through some interesting stories and experiences as written down by some of our famous UFO and alien abduction authors, including John Keel, the man himself, Jim Keith, David M. Jacobs, 
Whitley Stryber and the UK's Tony Dodd. So, we're in for quite a ride today. I hope you enjoy it. Now, let's get started with that first experience. Pause everyone. Just a quick note before I play Michelle's phone call. This was a recorded phone call and I recorded it using a phone recording app and it turned out to be really pretty bad quality. I've played around with the audio so that you can hear Michelle's voice but unfortunately it has meant that you can also hear every breath I take. Sorry about that. You also might need to turn down the volume just for the phone call. I'm really sorry about this. I just couldn't make it any better. So I really hope that you still enjoy the contents of the call and then go on to enjoy the rest of the show. Okay, we're really going to start this time. Here's Michelle from West Yorkshire. Oh, thank you so much for calling me. Do you know, I'm so annoyed with um, the fact that the uh, the thing didn't record for you. That was so annoying. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you. So, well, basically, just tell me what happened. Um, so, um, I'd been out on a day and we'd parked up on Cousin Lane for, uh, obviously for a kiss and a cuddle before um, he dropped me off at home. Yeah. And we'd parked up and I just happened to look out the window and just saw this, this light and I was looking at it. And I just, it just weren't, it weren't doing anything, it weren't, it weren't the moon, because the moon was to the other side, it weren't a star, it was just there, hovering, well, in the sky, it was just one, and I'm like looking at it, and looking at it, and I'm thinking, what on earth is that, and I said to the chap I was with, what's that, and he went, I don't know. Is it a plane? I said, it's been there for ages. I said, and he says, oh, it shows what a great day this is. That you're more interested in looking out with me than you are at me. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, stop it, but look, and it, it was just, it was just still in the same place. And then all of a sudden, it just went. Wow. It literally just vanished. But there was just absolutely nothing. It weren't, um, it weren't in a holding pattern. It didn't have any blinking lights or all like that because you could always tell if it's a plane or something because there's always someone on them flashing somewhere. Yeah. But there was just nothing. And like this orb was just there. How high up do you think it was? It was quite high. Um, I don't, it, it wasn't sort of on level with the stars or anything like that. Um, but it was too low for it to be a plane, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and it was just there for ages, and then it just literally disappeared. It was like someone had shone a torch in the and then said, turn the torch off. It was too bright to be a torch, obviously, because the torch was like just carried on things, and it just stopped in one space. Yeah, yeah. 
it went round, it was like, it, it was just an odd shape. And that weren't real, like. Yeah, and it didn't have any lights on it or anything? Nothing at all. No flashing lights, no nothing at all. Um, because helicopters, no, unless, even during the day they've got lights on them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there were just nothing, absolutely nothing. And you didn't meet... Sorry, go on. It was just like someone had gone out. It didn't shoot anywhere, it just disappeared. And you didn't hear any noise or anything? Um, no, it was too far away for us to hear any noises. Um, but, yeah, there was just nothing at all. Absolutely cut away. Gosh. And you didn't notice anything strange like having any missing time or anything? Everything just seemed to go on as normal. Um, well, I think so. Yeah. I was just, I was just like, it, well, I, it, it held my attention more than what my day did. <laughs> Poor man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, and it, because he's like, but I can't believe that that's, you know, you're more interested in that than me. <laughs> I'm like, well, shut up, look at it. Fine, <laughs> right, yeah, so like, I'm like, yeah, but what is it? And he's like, well, how do I know? I'm like, God, you're clever, aren't you? So he wasn't interested at all. It was just no. No, he was interested. So we're gonna get more than a kiss. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it was just really, really weird. Gosh, that's amazing. Yeah, but it was it was like above the trees because it's very it's all on one side down. It's just like trees on your own. Um, on your on your left on side. Yeah. And then there's trees that sort of go into where the old um, convent used to be. Yeah. Sort of above them. So it wasn't a street light or anything like that. It was just there. Just by itself. Yes, it was like someone had just thrown a ball of light into the sky and then it had just gone out. That's so weird. Wow. That is really strange, isn't it? But apparently there's been a lot of sightings over that, well, over Halifax area and um, Hebden Bridge and Todmorden. Just weird. And you've not seen anything since? That's just, that was it? Yeah, no, that was it. No, because I love watching Bank Sky. Yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, no, nothing. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Oh, thank you. I'm so chuffed that you called me because it's been on my mind all these years going, I wish I could ask Michelle about that thing that she told me about. Never... Uh, that was just it, really. It was just weird. That's fantastic. Take care, Michelle. Uh, see, you, see you later. Bye. think about UFO sightings and alien abductions, one of the most commonly asked questions is, what do these creatures look like? I am now going to read out some descriptions of aliens, which have been put together by a man called David M. Jacobs, who also wrote the book The Threat. And his more recent book, Walking Among Us, 
Get it right, Michaela. Walking Among Us is also called The Alien Plan to Control Humanity. And in it, David M. Jacobs goes to great lengths to develop a chart which describes every type of alien he has researched and what they look like. So I thought it might be quite interesting to read them out to you and see what you think. So, it's called Table 2, The Alien Spectrum. And this consists of um, ranging um, creatures ranging from full-blooded aliens and through hybrids. Okay, are you ready? So, the first type, insectoids, which David calls insectolins. Characteristics, praying mantis-like, six feet plus tall, thin body, very strong neural engagement, only communicate telepathically, vaguely triangular hairless head, very large fully black almond shaped eyes pointed diagonally down towards pointed bottom of head, nose, ear holes or mouth rarely reported, no chins, gender unknown, no apparent humanoid musculature. Function or role. Oversee abduction operation. Seem to be in command. Sometimes conduct preliminary examinations on abductees. Some wear robes with an extremely high collar, perhaps indicating superior authority over other insectolins. Can engage in some substantive conversations. No apparent humanoid heart or lung system. No identifiable reproductive or waste removal organs. No identifiable gender, assumed male. Energy food intake unknown. Next alien. These are the small greys. Three to three and a half feet tall and thin. Strong neural engagement. Only communicate telepathically. Large, hairless head, large black almond-shaped eyes pointing towards nose holes, non-functioning slit for mouth, nose and ear holes, pointed chin, no identifiable reproductive or waste removal organs, no apparent musculature, no apparent circulatory system, when cut a clear liquid comes out of the wound. No gender identification, assumed male. Probably written by a man. Oh yes, so it is, David M. Jacobs. (laughs) Energy, food intake unknown. Assumed skin absorption of liquid nutrients. Function, helpers. Abduct humans and take them on board UFOs. Help abductees take off and put on their clothes. Escort abductees around UFOs for scheduled procedures. Perform menial functions like cleaning human urine or vomit. Then we move on to the tall greys. Four to four and a half feet tall and thin. Strong neural engagement. Only communicate telepathically. Large hairless head. Large black almond shaped eyes pointing towards nose holes. Non-functioning slit for mouth. Nose and ear holes, pointed chin. No apparent heart or lungs. No identifiable reproductive or waste removal organs. Identifiable as male or female. 
energy food through skin absorption of liquid nutrients. Their function before the more complex procedures, egg and sperm harvesting, embryo implantation and fetal extraction. Abduct humans and take them on board UFO. Next aliens, reptilian hybrids may actually be one of the other groups. He calls them reptilian hybrids. Five to six feet tall, snake-like head, varied descriptions, scaly or mottled skin, neural engagement strength unknown, only communicate telepathically. Eyes described as cat-like or more humanoid, not fully black. Nose and ear holes rarely reported. Mouth, no apparent heart and or lungs, no identifiable reproductive or waste removal organs. Unknown gender, assumed male. Energy, food unknown. Their function, perform more complex physical procedures and question abductees about events in their lives. Next alien, humanoid hybrids, early stage. Grey, alien looking but human shaped faces with small facial features. Five to five and a half feet tall, thin body, thin wispy hair, small noses and mouths, small or no ears. Small amount of white, Slera in their large but human-shaped eyes, small pointed chins, male and female, heart and or lungs unknown, existence of reproductive or waste removal organs unknown, neural engagement strength unknown, only communicate telepathically, energy food through skin absorption of liquid nutrients, function caretakers for hybrid babies and toddlers. Next alien, humanoid hybrids, middle stage. Faces half alien and half human, five to five foot eight inches tall, medium thick hair, small mouths and noses, small often pointed chins, eyes have more white but still too little for normal humans, heart and lung capacity unknown, existence of reproductive or waste removal organs unknown male and female, energy, food, unknown, medium strength, neural engagement, only communicate telepathically. Their function is that they are caretakers for hybrid toddlers and older children. They perform procedures on humans, help small greys process abductees on board, escort abductees around UFO, tend to be more communicative than greys or early stage humanoids. Next aliens, humanoid hybrids, late stage. Look human, except that they may not have pubic or body hair. Five to five foot 10 inches tall, they can easily pass for human, male or female. Irises can appear to be too large. Normal head hair, normal reproductive and waste functions male and female, energy food through mouths, medium neural engagement, communicate mainly telepathically, but can do so verbally. Hmm. Their roles, they perform procedures, 
leave UFOs to bring abductees on board, may develop special relationships with abductees, often attaching themselves to female abductees from an early age as personal project hybrids, often enforce rules, making sure that abductees comply with the program, do not live on Earth, can be communicative, help hybrids integrate. Next stage, humanoid hybrids, human stage, advanced and security hybrids. Physically indistinguishable from humans, five foot six to five foot 10 inches tall, single-minded in their functions. Security hybrids are male. Advanced hybrids are male and female. Eat through their mouths, medium neural engagement, communicate both telepathically and verbally. Their function, security hybrids protect hubrids who are living on earth and make sure there are new security breaches. Help hubrids integrate. Ensure abductees secrecy. Advanced hybrids come to earth to obtain housing for hubrids and independence. Help obtain materials for furnishing apartments. Help train abductees for future tasks may live on earth then final section hubrids independent and group human in every way except in specific neural functions five foot six to five foot ten inches tall telepathic and verbal communication broad-minded male and female can learn to be citizens medium to weak neural engagement Live on Earth and seamlessly blend into society. Group hubrids learn as much about Earth society as possible. Live together in twos or threes. Independent hubrids learn as much as possible about human life. They live alone, but also maintain contact with their UFOs. Independents help group hubrids integrate. So, there we are. Make of that what you will next time you meet someone in the supermarket just check those eyes are their irises too big or too big even food for thought Stryber's book Communion you can see a picture on the front cover of the aliens that he says abducted him. Interestingly they are of a similar description to the generic greys that people talk about however on the front of his book he's had them coloured in a kind of pale yellowy beige which is quite interesting. So let's have a look to some of the descriptions Whitley Stryber has given to the aliens he met. I was aware that I had seen four different types of figures. The first was the small robot being that had led the way into my bedroom. He was followed by a large group of short, stocky ones in the dark blue coveralls. These had wide faces, appearing either dark grey or dark blue in that light, with glittering deep-set eyes 
pug noses and broad, somewhat human mouths. Inside the room I encountered two types of creature that did not look at all human. The most prov provocative of these was about five feet tall, very slender and delicate, with extremely prominent and mesmerising black slanted eyes. This being had an almost vestigial mouth and nose. The huddled figures in the theatre were somewhat smaller, with similarly shaped heads but round black eyes like large buttons. Throughout the whole experience, the stocky ones were always present. They were apparently responsible for moving and controlling me, and I had the distinct impression that they were a sort of good army. Why good, I do not know. Now these beings in the coveralls really struck a chord with me because last night I was listening to The Confessionals with Tony Merkel and it was a podcast that he did the middle of last year about aliens and reptilians where he had a guest on who had claimed to have been taken away by aliens but that they had um, a vast army of other types of aliens who were kind of the workers and they called them the marshmallow men because they were wearing white coveralls and they were responsible for moving everyone around. So that's an interesting correlation. At the end of the podcast, I will put a link to Tony Merkel's podcast so that you can listen to the whole interview. The next bit is a section from a conversation between Bud Hopkins and Whitley Stryber when he was in the middle of regressive hypnotherapy and he starts to describe one of the aliens. Bud Hopkins, you said first that the figure seemed to be covered up like with a hood. Yeah, but when it came close to me, I could see its face. You said it had a bald head. Yeah, did I? Yes. Well, you see, I can sort of see that it had a bald, rather largish head for someone that size, and its eyes are slanted, more than an Eastern Asian's eyes, and they're quite... there's a piercing glare almost. There's a real fierce look to the whole face. I'm not sure, but at some point I almost thought it looks like a bug, but not, you know... More like a person than a bug, but there were bug-like qualities to it. Am I getting myself clear at all? Oh, yes. Have you ever seen an image like that before? I don't know. The only thing I ever remember reading about this was in Look magazine years and years ago. The Incident. The John Fuller article about people who were picked up. That's all I've read about it. And whether or not they had pictures drawn, I just don't know. Stryber then goes on to describe another one of the beings he encountered. They watched this with their steady eyes like huge black jewels. The closest thing I've been able to find to an unadorned image of these beings is not from some modern science fiction movie. It is rather the age-old glaring face of Ishtar. Paint her eyes entirely black Remove her hair, and there is my image as it hangs before me now in my mind's eye, the ancient and terrible one, the bringer of wisdom, 
the ruthless questioner. Do my memories come from my own life, or from other lives lived long ago, in the shadowy temples where the grey goddess reigned? Perhaps the visitors are, are the gods. Maybe they created us. The next section is another extract from his hypnosis. He's talking to Bud. She's staring right back at me. She looks like a big bug, just sitting there, staring at me. Are you staring back? I don't know exactly what I'm doing. I'm feeling very sad. Sad? Sad, yeah. I'm looking at her. She's looking at me. Do you know why? No idea. I just don't understand it. It's very hard to understand. You say she looks like a bug? Yeah. Great big black eyes. She's sort of brown. She has a little tiny mouth. She's thin. She have antennae? No. She have hair? No, she's bald. She have ears? I don't see any. Eyebrows? No. Does she have a nose? A little bitty tiny sort of two-holed nose. A nose or just the holes? I guess it's there. What's the mouth like? It's straight and sort of... It's straight and... For some reason it's a little hard to look at. Try to make it out. Horizontal lips? Yeah, it's very slight. Just an opening. Very slight lips. Sitting there like that. I drew my hands around my knees to demonstrate the position. Then I paused, remembering a confusion of images. Something happened to me just then. She sat there for a long time, then put a hand out, put it under my shirt and under my sweater and under me and put it right up against my chest, on the side of my chest. And it felt sort of soft and it's, it doesn't feel bad to be touched like that by that thing. And then she takes her hand away. Stryber says next, Bud Hopkins suggested that I get an artist to render the image. We chose Ted Jacobs because he's so skilled in creating portraits from verbal descriptions. It was when Ted came over with his sketch pad that I discovered what was the most interesting thing about the image. I was sitting with my eyes closed, describing this face as carefully as I could. I could see it in amazing detail, moving closer and then farther back observing fine points such as the faint dusting of white powdery fuzz that seemed to cover its cheeks and forehead, making it feel, I would imagine, to the touch as smooth as the downy head of a baby. The nose was not very prominent, but the end seemed sensitive, almost like the end of a finger. As I watched, the image moved its nose, revealing that this was obviously a sensitive organ, both of touch and smell. The mouth was not straight, but rather one of those rich and complex lines that come to a human mouth with the advance of years. Centred in this mouth was a remarkable expression, the outcome, it seemed to me, of implacable will leavened by what I can only describe as mirth. Ted Jacobs tried especially hard to capture that elusive quality and succeeded brilliantly. 
although the final result on the cover of this book is a bit more human than was actually the case. Specifically, the mouth was nothing more than a line, albeit a complex one. There were no lips at all, and the cranium was a good bit larger than the cover portrait would suggest. The chin was strong, very pointed, and there was a general impression that the skin was stretched over a plated bone structure. By far the most arresting feature in this face was the eyes. They were far larger than our own eyes. In them I once or twice glimpsed a suggestion of black iris and pupil, but it was no more than a suggestion, as if there were optic structures of some kind floating behind those wells of darkness. It was those eyes that I saw staring down at me on October the 4th, those eyes that gleamed so furiously in the faint night light. I remember them from December 26th too, and from the summer of 1957, and from the experience with the fog bank. Ted asked me many questions about the eyes. When he asked me how they looked closed, I got another shock. The image closed its eyes. I saw the huge glassy structures recede and loosen, becoming wrinkled and the lids come down and up at the same time to close just below the middle of the eyeball. I described this to Ted, but he wanted to know more. How about a profile view? Had I ever seen a profile? As I sat there staring into the darkness of my own mind, I saw the image obediently turn its head. I could hardly believe what I was observing. Was this a phantom? What was it? My research thus far has not uncovered any specific paradigm of this experience. I will not assert finally that it was a mental phenomenon, as yet unidentified, but at the moment this remains a distinct possibility. This final extract by Whitley Stryber is towards the end of the book, where he discovers a support group of other abductees, and he describes similarities that they've all noticed. I found that my experience had many similarities to those of the support group. We've almost all seen versions of the same creatures. Some of these are small and quick, wearing grey or blue uniforms. Others are taller, graceful and thin, some with almond eyes and others with round eyes. I've also seen in my childhood a very commanding presence in white, which had light blue eyes and skin as white as a sheet. This came back to me in the form of disjointed memories, apparently dislodged by all the thinking I'd been doing about this subject. Other relatively common observations are the seemingly ubiquitous grey table with the solid base, the smallness of the visitors, their large black eyes devoid of iris or pupil, and the fact that there is either more than one type or more than one species appearing in the same context. Many of us also seem to have relationships with particular beings. Their skin tone seems to be grey, with other overtones. When they speak aloud, it is sometimes with a high squeaking sound, other times in a deep bass. They can also create words inside the centre of their heads. One occasionally feels from them powerful emotions. Other times they are as emotionless as stones. People report various smells, 
primarily pungent. Light, both as a means of anaesthesia and as a medium of transport, is commonly described. I rose up the shaft of light and the light hit me and I was totally paralysed are typical statements. Electromagnetic effects are also commonly reported, primarily malfunctioning cars, television sets and home lights. A number of us have also been in a small operating theatre, but nobody seems to remember what transpires there. One woman was left to walk around in such a place by herself. Interestingly, one sound that is reported other than the various voices is a very low-pitched noise. There is a small body of research suggesting that low-frequency sound may have biological effects, especially in the area of disorientation. So there we have it, Whitley Stryber's description of the grey alien in lots of detail. How fascinating. Besides the very famous cases of UFO and alien encounters, such as those of Betty and Barney Hill, Woodrow Derenberger with Indrid Cold, and Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker, there are countless other reports of sightings of UFOs and meetings with aliens. Here are a couple of lesser-known but nonetheless interesting encounters. The first one is taken from the book Alien Investigator, by the author Tony Dodd from the UK. She told me the full story. Her name was Carol Thomas and her daughter was Helen and in 1988 they were 45 and 24 years old. They lived in Birmingham and worked together at a mill close to both of their homes. Their normal routine was for Helen to call at her mother's house and then they would walk together to the mill which was about 15 minutes away. The route which they followed every day took them through some alleyways between houses. On the morning of 30th of March 1988, they were chatting as they walked along in darkness. They both heard a distant humming noise and commented on it, but it, because at that time of the morning, none of the local factories had started for the day and it was normally very quiet. Carol takes up the story in her own words. Suddenly, we were both startled by a light which was shining down on us from above. It was like somebody shining a bright torch. We both stopped and looked up, becoming frightened as the light got larger and larger until it was directly above our heads. I remember holding my daughter's hand and then starting to feel dizzy. The next thing I remember was walking along the alley with my daughter but something was wrong. We were both in a daze and walked er erratically because we were dizzy. My daughter was wearing a leather coat which was wet, yet it hadn't been raining. We felt very strange and when we reached the mill, the security guard commented that we were very late for work. We don't remember much about that day at all, but since then we've been very nervous when we walk to work. I questioned them both and discovered that they had suffered a reddening and blistering of the skin on their faces and arms 
just like sunburn after the incident, and that they also both suffered from nosebleeds and a discharge from their navels. As well as this, Helen noticed a circular patch of hair was missing from the nape of her neck. Although several years had elapsed since their strange experience, the women were both still very shaken by it, and puzzled by the fact that they had lost a chunk of time on their journey to work. They told me that if they'd not been together when it happened, they would have begun to feel they'd imagined it. I was familiar with the missing time syndrome because it crops up regularly in encounters with aliens and almost always masks memories of an abductor. The the majority of abductees have no conscious recollection of what happened to them. They regain their memories piecemeal over the weeks and years after the incident or they allow themselves to be hypnotised to recover their memories. Carol and Helen both agreed to undergo hypnosis, so I arranged for this to take place on 12th of March 1994. They attended the session together, but were hypnotised separately, out of sight and earshot of each other. Carol, who was put under first, was invited to remember the events of the day of the encounter. She described their normal morning routine, and then went on to recall everything from arriving at the alleyway. I can hear our footsteps as we walk. Then I hear another sound. It's strange. I've never heard it before. It's like a low humming sound. Seems to be above us. There's a light in the air, like a torch shining down on us. It's getting bigger. We're frightened, holding each other's hand. I feel strange. The light is now below us. We're looking down on the light. There's a moon above us. We're moving towards it. There was a long pause. Then she spoke again, hesitantly and looking bewildered. Where am I? A room. All white. Everything is white. It seems to have a window all the way around it. I'm lying on a table. Can't move. I've got no clothes on. There's a netting cloth over my legs. It feels wet. I can see Helen. She's lying on a table next to me. She has no clothes on and there's netting over her legs. What are they doing? At this point I asked her, What is who doing? Her answer was, The little men. So I asked her to describe them. They're strange. Only small... They've got tiny ears and big black eyes. They're very thin. They've got three long, thin fingers. They're not wearing any clothes and their skin is white. There's some around my table and some around Helen's. They're touching my stomach. They feel cold. They're looking at my hands and feet. They've got a long glass tube. It's only thin. They seem to be pushing it into my stomach through my navel. She seemed frightened as she talked of this, but when I asked her if she could feel any pain, she said no. But they've left the tube sticking out. They're looking at my hair. It feels as though they're pulling it. They've gone back to my stomach. They're pulling the tube out. It's got fluid in it. I think they're taking eggs from me.
Next, we have the case of an abductee wanting to know from the aliens where she's been taken. This excerpt is taken from the book The Threat by David M. Jacobs, PhD. Abductees have, of course, asked the aliens where they come from, and the answers indicate that they are indeed from another planet somewhere in the known universe. Since there are billions of stars and therefore billions of possible planets, this explanation seems reasonable and abductee testimony seems to bear it out. When abductees have asked the aliens about their home, they sometimes point to an area of the sky. They do not talk about parallel universes, time travel, dimensions or other exotic locations. In one instance, Michelle Peters, a woman with two children living in New Jersey, had a conversation with an adult hybrid. I asked him where he's from and he said up north. I sat up and looked at him. He pointed up at the stars and he said, It's about right there, but you can't see it. You can see stars around it if you had a telescope. Three little stars and a planet. Then there's a cluster and then there's that. It's like a helix. First there's a few little stars, then the planet, then the cluster, and then their planet. It's real far away. Kathleen Morrison found herself with an adult hybrid staring out of a window into space. The hybrid explained to her that travel through the stars was accomplished in stages. He's pointing out constellations and stuff. Not just constellations like we know them, but points out farther things. It seems that there's a link between certain of the systems that stretch out into space. I don't know. All I can think of is, if you're crossing a river and you have stones, and you jump from one stone to the next stone to the next stone, that's the best analogy that I can think of. But he points that kind of stuff out. Stepping stones. Other abductees have described being in space and looking down at Earth. Their UFO did enter another universe. Many abductees have reported being in desert-like terrain. Although the meaning of these settings is unclear, there are indications that such terrain may be a home environment for the aliens. Susan Steiner remembered an incident when she was in one of these environments walking on sand. The sky is like reddish. There's like cloud formations that are sort of hanging in the air very low, like very... Uh, they're not like cumulus clouds they're more feathery type clouds and they're like all different colours like multicoloured and they're hanging in the air almost like cotton candy or angel's hair it looks sort of like angel's hair hanging there in the air it's just like all over the place there's like three looks like there's three suns in the sky one of them has like little smaller things sort of like I don't know what you'd call them but like rotating around one of the suns the other two don't have that the other two are just plain we start walking out into this stuff and then you were walking on the sand right but it's like hard sand it's not like beach sand it's like harder than that but it's definitely sand just not like a beach 
and then we're like walking and he's grabbing my hand he takes my hand and it seems like we're walking up steps but there's no steps we're just floating and we float up toward this building these big glass doors she floated into the building where two tall robed beings met her she then went un- underwent the standard alien procedures we do not yet know where the aliens come from or how they get here but a picture is emerging again from abductees accounts of what their lives are like aboard the vehicles that appear to have transported them We've all heard of the Roswell and Rendlesham Forest UFO crashes, as they're well documented. However, here is one which is a bit less well known, written by Tony Dodd in his book Alien Investigator, when he teams up with a friend of his, a South African man called Armand Victorian. Why don't you listen and have a ponder over it? Do you think it's authentic? See what you think. Two weeks later, a package arrived, again with a South African postmark. I opened it with anticipation. It contained a letter and five pages of what the writer claimed was a South African Air Force briefing document. This time, our correspondent revealed his name. James Van Groenen. We were given an address in South Africa where we could contact him. We were instantly suspicious of the authenticity of the photocopied document. It contained some surprising spelling and grammar mistakes. Nevertheless, these we felt could be excused, as the document was probably hastily produced, and for security reasons it was unlikely to have been typed by a secretary. There was also a curious mixture of metric and imperial measurements, sometimes using metres and sometimes yards. What was even more alarming was that the crest at the top of each page, the symbol of the South African Air Force, was not as crisp as the typed words, suggesting that it may have been a photocopy of a photocopy. The contents of the document were mind-blowing, confirming the information Van Groenen had preceded in his original anonymous letter. Our material, as sensational as this, we were naturally on our guard against it. And both Armin and I were initially prepared to dismiss the whole thing as a hoax and an elaborate fake. Each page of the document was headed with the SAAF symbol, an eagle with wings outspread. The reproduction was so poor it was barely possible to make out the motto beneath the eagle's talons. All five pages were headed, classified, top secret, do not divulge. The first page had the heading, Department of Special Investigations and Research, with Department of Air Force Intelligence beneath it. It gave the date 7th of May 1989 and stated that its subject was unidentified flying object. It listed a code name, Silver Diamond, a file number and a destination for the document of Valhalla Air Base, Pretoria, and assigned it 
to a red or top secret rating. It then listed the contents of the next four pages, including craft specifications and humanoid specifications. The page concluded with the words, Defence Computer Passcode, proceed with caution. Page two gave the details of the incident, and I quote it here in full, complete with errors. Dodd writes, At 13 hours 45 GMT, on 7th of May 1989, the naval frigate SA Tafelberg radioed Cape Town Naval Headquarters to report an unidentified flying object that appeared on radar scopes, heading towards the African continent in a northwesterly direction at a calculated speed of 5,746 nautical miles per hour. Naval headquarters acknowledged and confirmed that the object was also tracked by airborne radar, military ground radar stations and DF Milan International Airport at Cape Town. The object entered South African airspace at 1300 hours 52 GMT. Radio contact was attempted with object, but all communication to object proved futile. Valhalla Air Force Base was notified and two armed Mirage FIIG fighters were scrambled. The object suddenly changed course at great speed, which would be impossible for military aircraft to complete. At 1359 GMT, squadron leader Goosen reported that they had radar and visual confirmation of the object. The order was given to arm and fire the experimental aircraft mounted Thor 2 laser cannon at object. This was done. Squadron leader Goosen reported that several blinding flashes emanated from the object. The object started wa wavering while still heading in a northerly direction. At 1402, it was reported that the object was decreasing altitude at a rate of 3,000 feet per minute. Then at greater speed, it dived at an angle of 25 degrees and impacted in desert terrain 80 kilometres north of South African border with Botswana, identified as the Central Kalahari Desert. Squadron leader Goosen was instructed to circle the area until retrieval of the object was complete. A team of Air Force intelligence officers, together with medical and technical staff, were promptly taken to area of impact for investigation and retrieval. The findings were as follows. 1. A crater of 150 metres in diameter and 12 metres in depth. 2. A silver-coloured disc-shaped object, about 45 degrees, embedded inside of crater. 3. Around object, sand and rocks were fused together by intense heat. 4. An intense magnetic and radioactive environment around object resulted in electronic failure in Air Force equipment. 5. It was suggested by team leader that object be moved to a classified Air Force base for further investigation, and this was done. The terrain of impact was filled with sand and rubble to disguise all evidence of this event ever having taken place. The third page of the document was headed Craft Specifications and included the following list. Type of craft, unknown, suspected extraterrestrial. Origin, unknown, suspected extraterrestrial. Identifiable markings, 
None. Curious insignia forged into metal on side of craft. Dimensions. Length, 20 yards approximately. Height, 9.5 yards approximately. Weight, 50,000 kilograms estimated. Material of construction. Unknown. Pending further laboratory results. Outer surface of object flawless polished. Smooth silver colour. No visible seams noted inside or on outer surface of craft. Perimeter showed 12 unevenly spaced, flushed with outer surface, oval-shaped portholes. Source of propulsion. Unknown. Pending laboratory results. Notes. A. A hydraulic-type landing gear was fully deployed, suggesting that electronic malfunction caused object to crash. This may have been due also to Thor laser cannon being fired at craft. B. While the investigating team observed the craft at classified AFC, a loud sound was heard. It was then noted that a hatch or entrance on lower side of craft had opened slightly. This opening was later prized open with heavy mechanical gear. These notes were continued on the fourth page of the document. C. Two humanoid entities clothed in tight-fitting grey suits emerged and were promptly taken to makeshift medical centre, level 6 of classified AFB. D. Various objects inside craft were taken for analysis and we are still pending results of these findings. E. The craft has been placed in a sterile environment. Medical report on humanoid entities. Origin, unknown. Suspect extraterrestrial. Height, 4 to 4.5 feet. Complexion, greyish blue. Skin texture smooth, extremely resilient. Hair, totally devoid of any bodily hair. Head, oversized in relation to human proportions. Raised cranium area with dark blue markings extended around head. Face. Prominent cheekbones. Eyes. Large and slanted upwards towards side of face. No pupils seen. Nose. Small consisting of two nostrils. Mouth. Small slit devoid of lips. Jaw. Wide in relation to human proportions. Ears. None observed. Neck. Very thin in relation to human proportions. Body. Arms. Long and thin reaching just above knees. Hands. Consisting of three digits. Webbed claw-like nails. Torso. Chest and abdomen covered in scaly ribbed skin. Hips. Small. Narrow. Legs. Short and thin. Genitals. No exterior sexual organs. Feet, consisting of three toes, no nails and webbed. Notes. Due to aggressive nature of the humanoids, no samples of blood or tissue could be taken. When offered various foods, they refused to eat. Method of communication is not known and suspect telepathic. Humanoids are kept in detention at classified AFB awaiting further results of investigations. One-way passage has been requested for both humanoids to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, USA, for more advanced investigation and research. The final page of the document was headed Conclusion. It read, A. 
No conclusion has yet been reached, awaiting results of investigations. B. The object and humanoids will be moved to Wright-Patterson AFB for more advanced investigation and research. C. Date of passage, 23rd of June, 1989. Notes. Conclusion remains open-ended. This file contains initial findings of preliminary report and further details are expected after completion of investigation in South Africa and Wright-Patterson AFB USA. End of preliminary briefing notes, page 1 to 5. Despite our grave misgivings about the provenance of the document, we decided to make contact with Van Groenen. There was a wealth of detail provided, and we felt it merited several checks to see if any of it could be corroborated. After all, the fact that the document might not be authentic did not mean the subject matter was not worth investigating. Armin and I agreed that we would not waste a great deal of our time on it, but that we would make some initial inquiries and only pursue the affair if we could find anything else, apart from this suspicious document to substantiate the UFO story. When we challenged James Van Groening by telephone, he insisted the document was genuine. We contacted a serving South African Air Force intelligence officer with a high security clearance, whose name and details were given to us by Van Groenen, but whom we checked ourselves. To our astonishment, he confirmed that a UFO had been brought down and claimed to have four 10-inch by 8-inch photographs of the UFO and its occupants. He also told us that a 90-page telex had been sent to the South African government from White Patterson Air Base, giving instructions on the handling and recovery of the UFO and the detention and treatment of its occupants. The involvement of Wright-Patterson Base in Ohio came as no surprise to us. Wright-Patterson is where the debris collected at the scene of the famous Roswell UFO crash was taken. The Roswell incident has been widely written about elsewhere and it remains the most intensively researched UFO encounter ever. And in our next UFO special, we will go into the Roswell incident and see what we can uncover. And no UFO podcast would be complete without delving into the case of the men in black. Who are these strange men that turn up after people have seen UFOs? and intimidate them, and interrogate them, and tell them not to say what they've seen. Are they government agents? Are they aliens? Are they indeed demons from another realm? Let's have a look. First of all, we're going to have a look at the book Casebook on the Men in Black by author Jim Keith. He had some very interesting experiences to record. At the same time that a UFO flap was in progress, commencing at about the same time as the Derenberger encounters, an area of West Virginia centred around the town of Point Pleasant experienced for over a year an epidemic of unnatural or perhaps just uncommon occurrences. 
These incidents were chronicled by John Keel in The Mothman Prophecies, published in 1975. Although I am focusing on this chapter and the Men in Black encounters recorded during this period, these incidents occurred in the context of sightings of every sort of flying saucer known to humanity, as well as huge birds, winged humanoid creatures, a wide range of poltergeist phenomena and cattle mutilations. On November 2, 1966, two men were driving home to Point Pleasant near Parkersburg, West Virginia, they watched as a dark, cylindrical UFO parked itself in front of them. A man dressed in a black coat emerged from the craft and walked toward them. He kept his hands folded under his armpits so they could not be seen. He grinned broadly at them and spoke to men through the car window. The youth nought, or UFO nought, queried them about who they were, where they hailed from, where they were headed, and also asked the time, as many men in blacks are apt to do. Then he went back to the UFO and took off. After the encounter, the men were approached by a scientist, who told them that they should forget the incident. Also in November, a professional woman in Gallipoli, Ohio, near the West Virginia Mothman haunts, was walking out of her office building when she saw what appeared to be a bright camera flash. She then saw a large, noiseless, cylindrical object that had landed in a parking lot only 20 feet from her. According to the woman, it just drifted down and stopped. The two men climbed out of the UFO. They were normal-sized, but had dark complexions, as if they were heavily tanned. They had pointed noses, pointed chins and high cheekbones, and wore coverall-like uniforms. Questioning the woman about her life, in high-pitched sing-song voices, they asked, "'What is your time?' Three or four times. They walked back to their craft and took off. The woman later saw the same men, dressed in normal earth clothing, walking down the street in Gallipoli. They nodded when they saw her. Incidents of cattle mutilation had taken place on the woman's farm in 1963-64. She'd seen some of the men involved, and they were tall and wore white coveralls. Her home had burned down during this period, and another home had been built. One night in her new home, she felt overpowering heat radiating through her bedroom, and at the same time heard the kitchen door open. As she lay in bed, unable to move, she saw a tall figure walk through the kitchen and leave through a locked door on the other side of the room. During the same time period, poltergeist-style phenomena took place, with she and her children hearing footsteps and heavy clanging on the roof. The woman's teenage son confirmed that she had told investigator John Keel. The boy also described a large UFO they had watched as it hovered above nearby trees on their farm, as well as telephone problems including beeping noises and electronic music. The electronic sounds heard on the telephone are a significant thread throughout the period of the Mothman incidents, providing an important clue as to the nature of these events. In early January 1967, Mrs Mary Heyer, a reporter for the Point Pleasant newspaper, was visited by the first of several strange visitors. The man was tiny 
about four feet six inches tall and wore his black hair in a bowl haircut. Although it was freezing outside, he dressed in shirt sleeves. He wore thick glasses and shoes that seemed odd because of the thickness of their soles. Thick soles are a recurring detail in many men in black encounters. Hire was scared by the man's weird hypnotic stare. Picking up a ballpoint pen, he examined it like he'd never seen one before. This detail is reminiscent of the earlier Men in Black incident, in which the man was unfamiliar with how to eat jello and seems as if it is a case of acting to establish weirdness. When Hire told him that he could have the ballpoint, he let out a cackling laugh and ran out into the night. Hire's phone would soon be ringing at all hours, sometimes with only electronic noise and beeping sounds when she picked up the receiver. In spring 1967, a UFO flew over Mary Hire's backyard, sweeping the yard with a searchlight. Later, she would meet the strange man again, but this time he was clad in khaki, although still wearing the familiar thick-soled shoes. Hire was walking in Point Pleasant when she saw the man approaching. When he noticed her, he looked alarmed and ran away to leap into a black car driven by a large man. Three days later, on May 8th, Hire arrived home at 11.30pm. As she opened her front door, a large black car squealed to a stop outside. A man got out of the car, raised a camera and took her picture. His flash gun was very bright, she later stated. It blinded me momentarily. While I was standing there rubbing my eyes, he got back into his car and it drove off. I couldn't see if there was anyone else in the car. The flash gun is another recurring MIB detail, which will be examined later. On September the 30th, Hire was walking down Main Street in Point Pleasant when she was slowly followed by a black Cadillac driven by a very large man. She got into her own car and... I was heading out onto Route 62 when I saw it again. It headed straight for me. I pulled over as far as I could and it almost ran right into me. It was the same car, but now there were three men in it. What do you suppose they were trying to prove? Mary Hire was later confronted at the newspaper offices by two men who, according to her, were almost twins. They were short and wore black overcoats and had dark complexions, looking somewhat Asian to hire. We hear there's been a lot of flying saucer activity around here, one commented. Hire said that there had been, and offered the man a file of clippings to look at, which he merely glanced at and handed back. Has anyone told you not to publish these reports? the man asked, and Hire replied in the negative. Hire recalls, he continued to probe, what would you do if someone did order you to stop writing about flying saucers? Hire said she would summarily direct them to hell. She went back to her work for a moment, and when she glanced up again, the men were gone. That same day, another short Asian-looking man with unruly hair and wearing a black suit arrived at the newspaper office, driving a white station wagon. Possessing an undefinable accent and freakishly long fingers, he also visited Mary Hire. He announced that his name was Jack Brown and that he was a UFO researcher. 
what would what 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 would you do if someone ordered ordered you to stop to stop printing ufo stories the man stammered i asked if he was with the two asian-looking men who had earlier visited the office and brown replied that he was not but that he was a friend of ufo researcher gray barker Hire persisted wondering if the man knew john keel i used to th think think the world of k k keel then a, a few minutes ago i bought a, a, a m m magazine he, he says he's seen ufos himself he he, he he's a l liar that night jack brown visited local resident connie carpenter and later arrived at parker mabel mcdaniel's home in point pleasant mabel had earlier seen a strange man flying winging his way through the skies over point pleasant staying at the mcdaniel home were their daughter linda and her husband roger scarberry who had earlier also had a terrifying encounter with mothman the mib told the mcdaniels and the scarberries that he was from cambridge ohio but when questioned did not seem to know anything about the area brown said he was a friend of mary hyer gray barker and john keel and carried a bulky tape recorder into the mcdaniel home the man shortly proved that he did not know how to operate the recorder, but also that he wasn't really interested in UFOs or anything relating to the Mothman incidents. Naturally, he asked the McDaniels how they thought Mary Hyer would react if asked to discontinue reporting on UFOs. The UFOs are not hostile, Jack Brown grumbled repeatedly during his visits to witnesses. On the morning of January 19, 1967, Tad Jones, an appliance store owner in Cross Lanes, West Virginia, encountered a large spherical metal UFO as he drove along Interstate 64. It hovered about four feet off the ground, and he watched it for two minutes before it took off. It was a large metal sphere, Jones said. Since it was broad daylight, I got a very good look at it. It was about 20 feet in diameter, and was the colour of dull aluminium. There were four legs attached to it, with caster-like wheels on the bottom of each one, and there was a small window about nine inches in diameter on the side facing me. But I couldn't see anything inside the sphere. On the underside there was something like a propeller. It was idling when I first drove up, and then it started spinning faster, and the whole object began to rise upward. It disappeared into the sky, and I drove on to my store. After reporting the sighting to the police, the local news media got hold of the story. The next morning a note was slipped under Jones's door. It was written on notepaper. It was written on notebook paper, sorry about that, in block letters, and said, We know what you have seen, and we know that you have talked. You'd better keep your mouth shut. A few days later another note arrived, again slipped under the door it was written on a piece of cardboard that had been burned around the edges and included another threat with the addition there won't won't be another warning but spelt want w a n t instead of won't there is nothing to suggest that the messages were more than a human intervention by government or incensed oddball but perhaps i protest too much 
given the volume of bizarre occurrences that were taking place in the area. It should be noted, however, that cross lanes have always been considered potentially mystical sites and hangouts for various forms of ultra-terrestrials and the odd Zobop. About a week after the sighting, Jones was driving along the same stretch of road where he had encountered the UFO. A man was standing below where the craft had hovered. Jones assumed the man was hitchhiking and offered him a ride, but the man waved him on. The next morning, the same man was standing in the same spot. He was very tanned, Jones said, or his face was very flushed. He looked normal and was wearing a blue coat and a blue cap with a visor, something like a uniform, I guess. I noted he was holding a box in his hand, some kind of instrument. It had a large dial on it like a clock, and a wire ran from it to his other hand. In April 1967, a man was driving near the chief cornstalk hunting grounds when a ten-foot-wide black form arose from the woods and flew over his car. He accelerated the car, but the wraith flew above until it turned away toward the river. Later in October, the man came home from work to find a prowler in his apartment. When I opened the door, I saw this man standing in my living room, he said. I think he dressed all in black. I couldn't see his face, but he was about five foot nine. I started to fumble for the light switch when he took my picture. There was a big flash of light, so bright I couldn't see a thing. While I was rubbing my eyes, the burglar darted past me and went out the open door. I guess I arrived just in time, because nothing was missing. Again, the phantom photo flashes. According to John Keel, in October 1967, three men were driving along Route 2 in West Virginia when they saw a large caped man walking beside the road. They stopped and looked back, and he was gone. There were open fields on both sides of the road. During the period of the Mothman encounters in Mount Misery, Long Island, a woman who John Keel refers to as Jane began a series of encounters that provide a culmination to this extraordinary period. In the spring of 1967, UFOs were frequently seen near Mount Misery. Jane and her boyfriend Richard were two of many who drove there to watch for UFOs, and in early May, on a back road, they had their wished-for encounter. Richard, driving the car, suddenly felt unwell and stopped the car. Then he went unconscious, slumping over the wheel. A brilliant beam of light shot out of the woods, like a floodlight, according to Jane. She felt unable to move, and the next thing either of them remember is driving along Old Country Road at the base of Mount Misery. Neither of them had the slightest idea of what had taken place in the interim. A few days later, on May 17th, Jane received a phone call in a curious metallic voice that said, Listen carefully, I cannot hear you. The voice told her to go to a nearby public library and to find a particular book on American Indian history. The following day, she followed instructions. At 10.30am, Jane found the library deserted, except for the librarian, who was dressed in an old-fashioned suit like something out of the 1940s, with a long skirt, broad shoulders and flat, old-looking shoes. She had a dark complexion, 
with black eyes and black hair and spoke in broken English. Oddly, the book Jane was looking for was on the librarian's desk. Jane had been told to read page 42, but when she did, she recalls, You won't believe this, but the print became smaller and smaller, then larger and larger. It changed into a message and I can remember every word of it. The message said, Good morning, friend. You have been selected for many reasons. One is that you are advanced in auto-suggestion. Through this science we will make contact. I have messages concerning Earth and its people. The time is set. Fear not, I am a friend. For reasons best known to ourselves, you must make your contacts known to one reliable person. To break this code is to break contact. Proof shall be given. Notes must be kept of the suggestion's date. Be in peace. Signed, A. Pow. Jane said, The print became very small again, and then the normal text reappeared. After she left the library, Jane was ill for several days. Jane was referred to John Keel, who suspected that Jane had been programmed for a set of special experiences, and I kept in constant touch with her in the months which followed, maintaining an extensive record of her experiences. By early June, Jane was seeing the librarian everywhere she went. In a department store, the woman tried to speak to Jane. Something seemed to be wrong. It was as if she were dead. She laughed like an emotionally disturbed person. Is there any AU here? the woman asked Jane, presumably inquiring about gold or possibly just trying to be weird. The following morning, Jane got up at dawn for a walk, only to have the librarian step out of an alley and approach her. Peter is coming, she told Jane. Why are you interested in our mount? Peter is coming very soon. Jane, a non-practising Catholic, took the reference to Peter to be an end-times reference, the final pope, according to prediction, being named Peter. As they conversed, a black, shiny, apparently brand-new Cadillac appeared on the scene, stopping next to the two. The driver had olive skin, wrap-around sunglasses, and wore a grey suit. A grinning Hawaiian with Asian eyes, also in a grey suit, stepped from the rear passenger section. Do you know who I am? the man asked. I am Apple, spelt A-P-O-L. He shook hands with Jane. His hands were icy cold. The Cadillac drove off, leaving the librarian, Jane and Apple. The trio walked towards the centre of town. Apple handed Jane a piece of old parchment with something wrapped in it and told her, Wear this always, so they will know who you are. Asking who they were, Apple said, they are the very good people. Inside the parchment was a quarter-sized metal disc. Now in Midtown, Jane told the others she was going to mail the discs to someone. She went into the post office and addressed and mailed the disc to Keel. After she returned, Apple told her about her childhood, including facts that she believed no one could have known, and recommended she avoid iodine in her diet. For health reasons, Jane was already avoiding iodine. 
The Cadillac returned and Apple and the librarian climbed in and drove off. I felt very strange while I was talking to them, Jing told Keel. I was woozy, like I was in a daze or something. When Keel received the disc and parchment, he mailed them back to Jane. Opening the return package, she was upset to find that the disc had been bent and the paper had been torn into three pieces. The disc had also turned black and smelled like rotten eggs. According to Keel, the implication was clear. Someone had the ability to intercept the US mail and tamper with things in sealed envelopes. On June 12th, Jane was visited at her house by Apple and his cohorts. They asked for water to take pills. They also gave Jane three of the same pills, telling her to take one and to take another one in two days. The other pill was provided so that she could have it analysed to prove that it would not harm her. Why she would have taken the first pill, I don't know, but Jane did. She got a terrible headache, her eyes became bloodshot, and the vision in one eye worsened and seemed to take on a cast. On analysis, the pills turned out to be sulphur, a common prescription medicine. Two days later, again for no reason that I can fathom, Jane took another pill. Her phone soon rang and a man with a Brooklyn accent told her he was Colonel John Dalton of the Air Force. He said he wanted to talk about Mitchell Field without clarifying what or whom that might be. He told Jane that he wanted to speak with her and asked her to come to his office. After she asked where his office was, he decided it might be better to come to her house. The conversation ended without Jane providing the man with her address. Still, Colonel Dalton showed up at 7.45 the next evening, accompanied by a young lieutenant. Dalton wore a black suit, had brown hair and eyes, and a very pointed nose. The lieutenant had whitish blonde hair that looked dyed, and wore an Air Force uniform. At about the same time as this visit, two MIBs with apparently dyed white hair were visiting Mary Hire in Point Pleasant, and tossing around the phrase, We'll see you in time, like Derenberger's Lanulosians. The colonel gave Jane a long, complicated form to sign that asked questions about her personal, medical and family history, and education. She declined to fill out the form, and the men left, driving away in a blue station wagon. On June 19th, Apple provided Jane with a message to be conveyed to John Keel. Things will become more serious in the Middle East. The Pope will go there soon on a peace mission. He will be martyred there in a horrible way, knifed to death in a bloody manner. Then the Antichrist will rise up out of Israel. Later prophecies given to Jane would say that the Pope would be attacked in a crowd at an airport on July 26th by an MIB with a black knife. The assassination would be preceded by a large earthquake. After the assassination, there would be three days of blackness and power failures around the world. Apple also predicted a number of plane crashes that, Keel says, took place on schedule, although he does not provide information on specific incidents. Desiring to delve deeper, John Keel hypnotised Jane, only to find his control taken over. She began channelling Apple, who wanted to gossip about Robert Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe. Apple also warned that Kennedy was in grave danger. Throughout the hypnotic session, the phone repeatedly rang, although when Keel picked it up, there was no one on the line. 
Although a violent earthquake killed a thousand people on July 22nd, the Pope was not assassinated on July 26, as predicted. Although three years later, on November 27, 1970, a man in black priest's garb with a black knife would attempt to kill the Pope at the Manila International Airport. Apple had more predictions, however, which he generally doled out over the phone. The dollar would be devalued. This did not take place until several years later. Red China would join the United Nations. It happened, but much later. Robert Kennedy should stay out of hotels, a warning that he did not heed, resulting in his murder by the somewhat Asian-looking Saran Saran. Apple also spoke of a disaster on the Ohio River that would kill many people. On November 3rd, 1967, Keel wrote to Mary Heyer, I have reason to suspect there may soon be a disaster in the Point Pleasant area which will not be related to the UFO mystery. A plant along the river may either blow up or burn down. Possibly the Navy installation in Point Pleasant will be the centre of such a disaster. A lot of people may be hurt. Don't even hint to anybody anything about this. December 15 was predicted as the day when the plant disaster would take place. Instead, the 700-foot silver bridge at Point Pleasant collapsed on that day, killing 46 confirmed persons. Significantly, two days prior to the collapse, two unidentified men were seen climbing on the side of the bridge. Although in print John Keel has remained mum about the almost sinister of possibilities regarding the Silver Bridge disaster, he stated the following to me, that is Jim Keith, in a 1996 interview. First of all, FBI men stand out like a sore thumb. They dress the same way, they wear neckties, they wear low-cut shoes. These are not the kind of guys you see in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, on the street. They just suddenly turned up just before the bridge went down. Was Kiel hinting that FBI men may have been responsible for the Silver Bridge disaster? And those quotes are taken from Casebook on the Men in Black by Jim Keith, who has also um, taken sections out of the Mothman Prophecies by John Keel. Any un-PC type statements I have tried to change into modern day more acceptable language but they were taken from these books and are not my own words. So what does that say about the men in black? Where does that leave us? Let's have a look. Jim Keith relates many many other cases of men in black being seen but I'll just fly to the end of the book now to see what his take on it was. What did he finally say about the men in black? So, in conclusion, this is what Jim Keith says finally about the men in black. Finally, there seems to be an actual men in black experience that is unexplainable in terms of strict materialism or known data that cannot be reduced to materialistic causation. These men in black manifest in seamless progression throughout the ages, unchanged for the most part except for the definitions that we apply to them. In ancient times they were fairies and trolls and demons. Now they are the UFO silencers, Deros or Hubbard's Markabians. 
they exist as an archetypal image of fear, not so different from the, the monster of the id posited by Ray Bradbury in the classic science fiction film Forbidden Planet. But do the men in black have a definable existence of their own, other than as a symbol of terror? Keith believes they do. Ultimately, the answer may be a simplicity. Perhaps, at least some cases, the men in black are simply the men in black, and our data and definitions are not sophisticated enough to encompass them. In certain cases, they do not seem to be human. In certain cases, their behaviour seems to violate commonly perceived reality. Other characteristics of the men in black occur frequently. 1. Naturally, they dress in black. They also often drive black cars with Cadillacs, sometimes old ones, as their apparent vehicle of choice. In recent years, their mode of transportation has occasionally been augmented by black, unmarked helicopters. 2. They attempt to silence UFO witnesses. 3. Many of the men in blacks are Asian or Asian-appearing with slanted eyes and dark skin. 4. They are often tall and sometimes have unnaturally long fingers. As the witch Isabel Gowdy said, his members are exceeding great and long. 5. Some walk in stiff mechanical fashion, while others sound like machines when they talk. Sometimes their energy runs down and they must leave in a hurry. 6. They frequently wear eye-in-the-triangle insignia or have them emblazoned on their cars, which I believe is most frequently used by that strange group called the... What's it called? <laughs> Forgot what it's called. Illuminati. These are strange characteristics which, upon consideration, do not provide answers about who these creatures are or where they come from. Perhaps they have little truck with mankind, except for these isolated incidents of pregnant strangeness of the sort that I have collected in this book. In all probability, we simply have not learned enough about the men in black other than to say that they exist and are extraordinarily weird. If we grant the possibility that certain examples of the men in black experience are paranormal, then at least some of them are an essentially unknown life form with extremely strange racial characteristics is the rough extent of what can be said about them at this time. Whatever they are, their existence suggests that there is another far stranger world out there where our simple concepts of reality do not always reign. This is the world more real than the real world. It is the world that authors Charles Fort, Philip K. Dick, H.P. Lovecraft, John Keel, Kenneth Grant and others have documented with heroism and strange poetry. It is the world that the psychops and psychops of scientism desperately try to protect and presumably us and themselves from steadfastly denying the reality of anything other than the mundane and the two-party system. With the men in black, one finally ends up 
with the conviction that reality may not be all that it is cracked up to be, and that we may live in a macabre comic book substitute for a world, brainstormed and inked by a low variety of chaos trickster, perhaps the men in black themselves. <laughs> This is the great John A. Keel's take on our friends from other planets in his book, The Mothman Prophecies. That unidentified flying objects have been present since the dawn of man is an undeniable fact. They are not only described repeatedly in the Bible, but were also the subject of cave paintings made thousands of years before the Bible was written and a strange procession of weird entities and frightening creatures have been with us just as long. When you review the ancient references, you are obliged to conclude that the presence of these objects and beings is a normal condition for this planet. These things, these other intelligences, or OINTSs, as Ivan Sanderson labelled them, either reside here but somehow remain concealed from us, or they do not exist at all and are actually special aberrations of the human mind. Tulpas, hallucinations, psychological constructs, momentary materialisations of energy from that dimension beyond the reach of our senses and even beyond the reaches of our scientific instruments. They are not from outer space. There is no need for them to be. They have always been here. Perhaps they were here long before we started bashing each other over the head with clubs. If so, they will undoubtedly still be here long after we have incinerated our cities, polluted all the waters, and rendered the very atmosphere unbreathable. Of course, their lives, if they have lives in the usual sense, will be much duller after we have gone. But if they can wait around long enough for another form of so-called intelligent life to crawl out from under a rock then they can begin their games again wise words john and something for us to dwell on when we get too big for our boots Well, that's it for tonight. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast for me. Remember to give it five stars if you like it. I really depend on those five-star ratings for boosting the listenership for the show. I look forward to snuggling down with you. Some spooky stories, a comfy chair and a tot of something fiery again next time. Take care and remember, together... We can figure it out. Good night. Mm-hmm.